Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth Radio. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus and conclude our study into the book of Exodus. And what's more, conclude our time together here (laughs) on Seeds of Truth Radio. After 13 and a half years, as I have already announced, tonight's program is my final time with you on Seeds of Truth Radio. I am moving to uh, northeastern Ohio here within the next month and a half or so, and so my time with you has come to an end. I may or may not continue radio out there. I'm still working through a couple of offers, but what I do know is I am moving, and this is my last time with you. And so I sit here in the friendly confines of this radio station in Chico, California, a bit more reflective than usual. So anyhow, this evening, I want to open up with a larger statement on the Exodus event itself and why, really, the Golden Calf Incident, which is going to be the heart of our study this evening, is quintessential to better understanding the book of Exodus as a whole. Let me start with this. In Benedict's work, The Spirit of the Liturgy, He reminds us that Israel departs from Egypt and slavery not to be like any other people, right? But to venture into the unknown Sinai to be at the service of God. So it is not just the conquest of another land per se, but a land given to the people as a place for worship of the one true God. Essentially, as Benedict XVI highlights, mere national autonomy in possession of land would reduce Israel to the status quo of every other nation. In this vein of thinking, there would be nothing distinct about the call of Israel to be, in his own words, that is our Lord's words, my chosen people. For this reason, the book of Exodus must be interpreted in light of the call to worship. Consider that the Hebrew word for worship, abodah, translates as uh, slavery or servitude. So what took place in Egypt was called out on Sinai. So we move from slavery to slavery. Well, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, no, sure it does. To man, slavery is degradation. To God, glorification. You see, this is not a master-servant relationship of slavery, but a father-son relationship that is about the deeper meaning of servitude. Huh? What does Jesus say? I have not come to be served, but to serve. Now, also note, that in the narrative of Adam, as we talked about it in our study on the book of Genesis, abodah can also mean till, ministry, or even right, R-I-T-E. So this speaks to the Israelites as a people that belong to God in and through the ministry of the priesthood. Remember what I said about Adam. Adam is the first high priest. You see, my friends, land only becomes a true good if it is a place where God reigns with man entering into the ritual of liturgy and worship. Ultimately, the life lived in the land that was given to the people of God by God is intended to be a reflection of the one true God they worship. Incidentally, the word for culture 
is derived from the Latin cultus, which best translates as worship or to till. The point here is that our culture is defined by how we worship. Just think about today, 2020. If you're listening to this program live and not years down the road, look at our culture. We are a reflection of just not what we worship, but who we worship. Right? We are fans of certain stars, whether they be Hollywood stars or sports stars, and maybe some of us take it too far and we worship them. And then what happens? We spend our time talking about who is the better actor or actress and who is the greatest sports star as opposed to as opposed to who God is, right? And our relationship with God. And not to say that there's some intrinsic evil there, but certainly it can go too far. And I think as a culture, we've taken a lot of what I was just talking about too far. We have placed things below God, above God, or before God. And that's a mistake. So culture is defined by how we worship. It's actually in the Word itself. Huh? In a beautiful line from Spirit of the Liturgy, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI says that worship offers us a share in heaven's mode of existence. And it contains the, the character of anticipation, giving the present proper measure. I love that statement. Giving the present proper measure. So when we enter into worship, we begin to better understand the meaning of our lives, that we should always live with one foot here on earth, but also one foot in heaven, which is to say, live with the end in mind, right? Benedict continues, man himself cannot simply make worship. If God does not reveal himself, man is clutching at empty space. So this leads man then to wonder about their innate need for worship, right? Consider the worship of the golden calf. We will discuss this evening and how it illustrates man's need to bring the invisible into the visible, the unseen into the seen. We could say the incident of the golden calf is self-generated worship, not one revealed by God. It is the slippery slope of man's need to worship outside of authentic revelation. Hmm? Again, as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI remarks, Sinai was not made to be seen as some kind of pit stop for refreshment in their wanderings in the desert, as much as it was a declaration of law and rule for righteous living, as much as it was a law and rule giving Israel its ethic, a guide into the interior dimension of the covenant with God that constitutes to them that they belong to God. Huh? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you can only be free if you are obedient to the loving God who slowly reveals himself to you. Because freedom is to be in possession of oneself. And this can only happen if we come to know the one who created us. He who is Father and shows us who we are. God the Father knows us better than we know ourselves. The problem is we get in the way of him showing us who we are and why we were created. All right, so what I wanted us to see here, and I I think I could say what Benedict XVI wants us to see here, at least in the spirit of liturgy, is that while the, the slaughter of the unblemished lamb signals entrance into that covenant dynamism with God, there is an interior dimension that demands our attention to the way of the commandments, the way of freedom. That's what the book of Exodus is about, and certainly that's what any study on the golden calf should talk about. That being said, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. 
and we will begin to read. Oh, by the way, this being our last episode together, I did receive permission from our station manager to go a little over if we need to. Because again, these are my last minutes with you. All right, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Isn't that interesting? So before we go any further, let us hit the pause button and ask the question, why is this significant? Well, we know that Moses was delayed because he remained on the fiery summit of Sinai for 40 days, as chapter 24, verse 18 reminded us. And evidently, as a result, the people below grew anxious that Moses had either died or or deserted them. There was a complete lack of patience. What did Jesus say? Do not be anxious. Do not worry. And as I've said it many times over, do not be preoccupied. That's what that Greek translates, huh? Do not be preoccupied. I think that's what's going on here. I think they grow impatient because they were preoccupied. They got all bound up in their concupiscent desire to worship a golden calf. And I say concupiscent desire because there's something deeper going on here in these verses. And pay close attention to these verses. Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And rose up to play. Okay. (laughs) The question that ought to be raised here, at least it was a question I not only asked again, but I've asked in the past, is how in the world did Aaron know how to build a golden calf? Right? I mean, think about that. How did Aaron know how to build a golden calf? I mean, that's a pretty detailed project to just fashion with a graving tool and Build a a molten calf? Are you kidding me? How did he do it? Well, because he learned from the masters of calf building in Egypt. Remember, my friends, what you feed grows. The more time you take in the way of a culture, cultus, worship, right? The more time you will absorb how that culture lives, how that people worship. Aaron learned the trade of calf building and molding such images from the masters, which, oh, by the way, brings me to my next point. Why a golden calf? I mean, we look at that and we say, what's the point? Do they build a golden calf to admire a pretty gold leg of a calf? (laughs) Come on, what's going on here? Well, something interesting and something we should all take stock in. Benedict XVI gives us a clue in Deus Caritas Est, his encyclical on God is love. In that encyclical, he reminds us that all ancient forms of idolatry involved cult prostitutes. In other words, 
Orgy prostitution was part of a ritual in the worship of pagan gods. One can say that their thirst for pagan worship was as much a thirst for prostitutional sex. Oh, by the way, my friends, this is actually in the Hebrew text because the phrase rose up to play is often translated as a euphemism for engaging in sexual orgies. Um, interestingly, the late 17th century Baroque piece by Netherlands painter Jean Steen captures the essence of this scene because there's not only eating, uh, drinking, playing, merriment, but evidently sex, right? And of course, as we read in the subsequent verses, God is most displeased. What do we read in verses 78? And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And, and this is important, these verses, because they not only highlight that he's displeased, but what I read in verses 5 to 6, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This is a uh, sacrilegious parody of the Sinai liturgy that sealed Israel's pledge of loyalty to Yahweh. Huh? This is always the business of the devil, the adversary, Satan. He hijacks truth, and he presents it as something that is good. Well, his hijacking is always a parody because it can never be the good in and of itself. God can make good out of evil because this is what he does because he's absolute good. But ultimately, the business of the adversary, the business of the tempter is to confuse. This is what Satan means. And he confuses by lying. Lying always leads to confusion. All right, let us continue. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Right? Stiff-necked, like, like an ox that resists the yoke of the plowman and, and goes its own way in stubborn defiance. Right? Stiff-necked. Verse 10. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, but of you I will make of a great nation. But Moses begged the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them forth to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. All right, what can we say here? Well, first and foremost, <laughs> this is why we call Moses the chief mediator of the Old Testament. Because he enters into this deep, intimate, almost challenging conversation with God and he says to him, remember your covenant. Remember that, that blood bond of love. Remember that truth, that it is not about this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This I desire for my people. We have to remember, 
The phrase in the Hebrew, the Lord repented, is less a change of mind. God is not schizophrenic and more of an act of merciful love, right? An act of merciful love. Verse 15, and Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tables of the covenant in his hands, tables that were written on both sides, on the one side and then and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God and the writings was the writing of God graven upon the tables. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, here we have Joshua, huh? When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tables out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it upon the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Whew! Isn't that interesting? So God was just burning hot. Moses says, why do you burn hot? And then Moses comes down from the mountain and burns hot. <laughs> it's interesting. Burned it and ground it. What is going on here? Well, what you have is the complete destruction of the idol that implies the utter powerlessness of the God, lowercase g, it was intended to represent. Power comes from God. This is why Jesus gives the apostles the power of the Holy Spirit. Power comes from God. All right, we continue. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. <laughs> you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And there came out this calf. <laughs> and there came out this calf. Poof, there it was. I had nothing to do with it, Moses. <laughs> As the Ignatius commentary highlights, you know, Aaron spins this ridiculous tale that omits all mention of his involvement in this deep, deep sacrilegious rebellion. Why? Well, why do we, you and I, my friends, spin ridiculous tales? Why? Because we can't face up to the shame and or guilt, right? We are constantly pointing the finger at someone else. Have you done that recently? Someone asks you the question, why did you do that? Out of frustration. Maybe they weren't even burning hot with anger. They just ask you, well, why did you do that? And then we begin to spin ridiculous tales. Remember what St. John Paul II said? An excuse is worse than a lie because it's a lie guarded. What's interesting about that simple truth is there's something that happens to us by nature that reveals the profound insight of what St. John Paul II is saying. What do I mean? Well, if you lie, then that means you have to put to memory that lie, right? So if you have to recall something you've done, just not once, twice, or even three times, but many times, you have to constantly recall something that didn't happen. That's a hard thing to do. And I think we've all been there to some degree. Make life simple. Tell the truth, right? Just speak truth. All right. 
verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had them break loose to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword on his side and go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp and slave every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. So there, my friends, in verse 29, uh, what are those words? Ordained yourselves. The literal translation is they filled your hand. So this is a Hebrew idiom for consecration to ministry. So the Levites earned this privilege by their zeal for Yahweh and their willingness to rally behind Moses. That's an Ignatius commentary point. And I want to reflect on this point because there's something very important about this. You know, we talk about the importance of vocations and to pray for vocations to the priesthood. And we have to be very intentional about this. We have to pray for vocations to the priesthood. I often get the question asked, well, how do you know someone has a call to the priesthood? Well, it might have to do something with their love for God, their zeal for God, their willingness to make sacrifices for God, something that has been put in them by God. It's interesting, if you were to go back into the history of ordaining priests and how men become priests, often they were elected by the people because they saw in a young man a particular zeal for God. That simple fact was built into the way people thought about vocations. And I, I think we've just kind of gotten away from that. Well, we have. And I get there's a process of, of discernment. But I wonder if we shouldn't be more proactive in encouraging men, young and old, right, if they are single, to discern the priesthood more proactively. I think we might get more vocations. All right, let's fast forward to chapter uh, 33, verses 12 to 17. And as we consider more of Moses' intercession, I'll just offer up a brief summary here. In verses 12 to 17, Moses protests the threat of divine abandonment until the Lord relents and agrees to accompany Israel to the promised land. Really, chapter 33, verses 12 to 17 are very similar to the words we just read. Moses is willingness to challenge God. His words are clear. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to become a mediator, autonomous or exclusive from the nation of Israel. Moses has the heart of a mediator and wants no blessing for himself that Israel cannot share in. Again, this is why he's chief mediator of the Old Testament. Chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, I beg you, Show me your glory. I beg you, show me your glory. Moses yearns to see the full glory of Yahweh. I beg you, show me your glory. Beg. That's the disposition of great prayer. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's at God's discretion, folks, right? All is at God's discretion for his greater glory and 
for the salvation of mankind, past, present, and future. Huh? Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What is going on there? Maybe we can look at this also in light of Christ. Clearly here, a direct vision of God's essence, who he is, is a blessing reserved for the afterlife. But as we speak to this, unlike Moses, Christ himself has seen the face of the Father in his full beatific splendor. What does Jesus say? If you see me, you see the Father. This is why it's so important to contemplate the holy face of Jesus. Contemplatio. You look at that word, what is the root? Templum, sacred. Contemplation literally translates as the act of looking at that which is sacred. As we contemplate the eyes of Jesus, we can begin to see the essence of who God is. Especially as we look upon the cross and contemplate the deeper meaning of divine love, sacrificial love. Hmm. All right, let's continue. Exodus chapter 34, verse 1 and following. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tables of stone like the first, and I will write upon the tables the words that were on the first tables which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. I want to go down to verse 7. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and faithfulness, keeping merciful love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is going on here? What is the significance of verse 7? Well, I was just talking about divine sacrificial love, right? Divine sacrificial love is the heights of God's mercy. In verse 7, the Hebrew word for merciful love is hased. And as John Paul II explains in his encyclical uh, Rich in Mercy, there are two principal words in the Old Testament that translate God's mercy. First, there is the word hased, which means steadfast love, a blood bond of love. In effect, covenant love, love defined by the exchange not of things, but of persons, as I just mentioned, he and me and, and I and him. My friends, someone who has the attribute of said is someone you can always count on. Someone who never lets you down. As noted by many Old Testament scholars, this love is, is what we would define as a dependable love, right? A holy love, a love that rescues. So said contains the meaning of faithfulness to one's own promises and commitment to others. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Now, by way of footnote, and not so much a footnote because I do think it's relative to our larger study, uh, the second term for God's mercy in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word rahamin. This word is defined as tenderness or, or compassionate love. This can be best understood as a love that springs forth from the innermost place of God's being. Uh, the root word of rahamim is a word that means the abdominal region or the womb. Hence, rahamim conveys intimacy, tenderness, and, and God's gentle touch. The person who has rahamim is someone who feels for your plight and is moved by compassion to help you. Rahamim is really often used in conjunction with hased because together they orchestrate the symphony of that most beautiful attribute of God's love. Mercy. So, 
essentially speaking, my friends, we are made to see that mercy is the movement of the heart that is shaken at the sight of another's pain. The active love of God that wants to fill every void and darkness in the human heart with life and joy. Certainly this translates the Latin misericordia, which is made up of the compound, right, that translates uh, heart and misery. All right, all that being said, in chapter uh, 34, verses 10 to 26, we have a list of terms governing the renewed Sinai covenant. In many respects, these verses are an abbreviation, as the commentaries highlight, of the earlier law codes that appear in the Decalogue and Covenant Code found in chapters 20 to 23, right? Now, I want to close with these last six verses from Exodus 34. Let's see here. I think it's 34 verses 29 to 35, the shining face of Moses. When Moses came down from Sinai with the two tables of the covenant in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Isn't that interesting? His face was shining because he was talking with God. That's what happens when we talk with God. By the way, his face shone, that phrase, that is a Hebrew expression suggesting rays or shafts of light emanating from Moses' face. The Hebrew verb for shine is a Quran, which is related to the Hebrew Karen which translates as horn. I know this because uh, the Latin translate, the Latin Vulgate rather, translates this passage as his face was horned. Does that sound familiar? It might because certainly this translation inspired such artists as Michelangelo to depict Moses with horns coming out of his head. All right, verse 30. And when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the sons of Israel what he was commanded, the sons of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses would put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. I love these verses, these verses that really emphasize the shining face of Moses. That being said, I would like to close this episode and our final teaching on the book of Exodus with this subject matter. That is the business of the shining face of Moses. Where else do we see Moses in great light appear in sacred scripture? Hmm? Where else do we see this? But in the transfiguration, right? In the transfiguration, there's Christ on the mountaintop in this brilliant light. And who is there alongside of Elijah but Moses? And what is that salient truth about the transfiguration? Without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more in the eyes of the apostles. Moses ascended the mountain. And when he came down from the mountain without ceasing to be who he was, he, be, he became something more, this, this brilliant light. Why do I want to close at this point? Because I think we need to internalize this truth as our own. That we too are called to become something more in God. That our face might shine in the darkness. This call we have to enter into the mystery of the transfiguration, 
the mystery of without ceasing to be who we are, we become something more in God. So many of us busy ourselves in desiring to become something that we're not. Always remember that without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more in the eyes of the apostles. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.